You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave. Whether you are listening to us live here on Triple R 102.7, streaming online at rrr.org.au or via podcast or the radio on-demand playback service. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. We're going to talk about some films. Good evening to you all. Hello. Hello. Howdy. We're going to discuss Captain America Civil War. This is the latest film in the massively successful and popular Marvel Cinematic Universe superhero franchise. And then from one end of the cinematic spectrum to the other, we're going to take a look at a New Zealand-Australian film, The Silences. This is an extremely intimate and personal documentary by filmmaker Margot Nash about growing up with mental illness in her family. But first, we'll begin by discussing another Australian film, A Month of Sundays. This is the latest feature by Matthew Saville, whose previous features are The Police, Procedurals, Felony and Noise. He's also worked in television a lot. Uh, Set in the Adelaide suburbs, A Month of Sundays stars Anthony Lepaggia as Frank Mollard, a divorced, middle-aged real estate agent whose life seems to have lost all meaning. Uh, This all changes when a wrong number leads to a new friendship. Julia Blake co-stars as does John Clark as Frank's boss, and Justine Clark plays his ex-wife, an actor whose career has just taken off. Anecdotally, this film seems to have completely divided opinions. So where do you all stand on this one? Somewhere in the middle. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sit on the fence. Me too, actually. Oh, good, I'm glad someone's Mm. taking the middle ground. (laughs) Well, it's a very middle-brow sort of More film criticism needs middle-ground discussion. Damn straight. I'm always saying you don't have to hate or love everything. Yeah, well, it's always nice if you do to feel passionate about something. That's true. It makes your tweets punchier. Mare isn't really great radio, but... (laughs) (laughs) You can't pack a bong for middle-of-the-road films. I'd rather middle of the ro- middle of the road than but middle you, brow. You'd pack some nice sandwiches <laughs> and, a, and a flask <laughs> of whiskey. Pack <laughs> lunch, some lovely, lovely thermos of tea, some scones. <laughs> okay, well, you're, you're in the, somewhere in the middle on this one, Cerise. Tell yeah. us why. Well, look, it's a nice enough film. There are plenty of chuckles to be had along the way, but for a film that ultimately turns into something of a dramedy around... Um, oh, I don't know. I'm going to spoiler territory. But it's matters of life and death in a very middle-class... Adelaide sort of way and uh, you know, for all of my great love for John Clark who does deliver lines in his um, inimitable fashion and the lines I'm sure he must have massaged a little personally because they just have that John Clarkiness about them uh, a couple of other good lines get dispensed by one or two of the other perfectly serviceable members of the cast I mean, Anthony Lepardley is fine everything about the film is fine it's just that um doesn't really create that much of an impression uh it's it's not a beautiful thing to behold this it's all natural lighting there's no artifice in there i actually craved some after i was getting a bit tired of all these gloomy interiors and rather you know their naturalistic lighting didn't do a lot for me um uh, for a film where the performances are sort of naturalistic but there's something slightly mm, mainstream australian comedy-ish about them as well it's, it's a little bit of a mismatch there for mine alex you are nodding yeah, I think... Not um, nodding off. <laughs> You'd say if a I A little column A and a little column yeah. B. There was really, for me, nothing that really linked this to uh, to Noise, which which I think is a really spectacular film, but there was not one point in this movie that I went, aha, this is the same same yeah, guy that made Noise. I'll second that. That being said, the first part of this film, I, I really only knew what I'd seen in, in trailers when it... Um, about this film so I hadn't read up anything about it the first third actually reminded me of a kind of middle-aged version of Chris Stenders' um, 
is that how the plural of Krivstenders? The Krivstenders. It's not the plural, it's the possessive. The, the possessive. Tense. Thank you, mm. Mr. Grammar. <laughs> <laughs> Jerk off of that. That, that. that would have annoyed me all night. I know, we're going to get tweets now. If I didn't correct you like a douche. Um, <laughs> a film made by a guy called Krivstenders called The Illustrated Family Doctor from 2005. The way that uh, Anthony Lidapalli is relationship with his job and this kind of downward spiral actually reminded me heaps of Illustrated Family Doctor, which I, I think is such an underrated film. I think it's a really great Australian film that kind of just got lost along the way. But the the last sort of two-thirds of this film go in very, very, very different directions. What I really like about Lapalia La is his, um, his banal eccentricity, and I think that the first part of this film really hooks into that. But again, I think we lose that as the film kind of goes in a very different direction i i wasn't hostile to this film um at all be i'm just uh on a subjective level it actually locked into just some things in my life that i connected with um and i also i'm going to say it i pack a bong for any film that name drops quentin crisp i i just do that 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 always gets a little <laughs> nod from me this is this is not a masterpiece of australian cinema but i i you know i enjoyed it i'm, I'm i didn't resent the hour and a half that I lost to it. Hour and fifty minutes. It's a bit long. Oh yeah, maybe. Mm. Let me rephrase. So bad you resent the last twenty and bad minutes. Maths. This is <laughs> You can actually literally mic drop on radio. I'm pretty close. Um, I had a similar response. The f- probably the first third of this film, I think, is really strong. I think it's strong for Lapalia's performance. I think that the chemistry, the comic chemistry between him and John Clark, is really lovely. There's some wonderful banter. Any, any film in which John Clark starts referencing Freud, I think, is, uh, you know, it's already on a winner to some degree. And the fact it manages to do a reasonable job at humanising real estate agents, which, as we know, all know, are the soulless scum of the earth. Every single one. There's not a single uh, exception to that rule. Except for the triple R subscribers that happen to yeah. know. <laughs> I don't think they listen to this show. Um, so, there is some interesting stuff in there. I don't even understand that reference, Alex. We're all a bit puzzled. <laughs> the, the real estate agent, she was worried that I'd have Offended the real estate agent uh, listenership of Triple R. Oh, I've been in the car with these people. They listen to Triple M, don't worry. Right, good. <laughs> um, getting back onto a month of Sundays, which could have been called a month of sun days, because this film, I think, is really about father-son, mother-son relationship. I was wondering if that was a deliberate pun on the part of the screenwriter and the film and, and the, the filmmaker. I'm not sh- quite sure it is. It, it, there is a recurrent theme throughout this. I mean, it becomes more and more obsessed with the families, family dynamics, children and their parents. Although, curiously, one of those sort of the, the play-within-the-film scenarios in which Lapalia's son is becoming a sort of performer, or I think they're performing King Lear, which, from memory, is about fathers and daughters although i think in the play that we see they're all performed by sons so there's there's definitely a kind of a as you said an all-boys school yeah indeed um but where i felt this film fall down a little for me is there's a a there's a moment that happens probably about halfway through which feels like it should have been a climactic emotional key point and i think it happens a little too early in the context of the narrative in, in a sense that the relationship between Lapalia and Julia Blake isn't quite firmly established yet, and they reach a kind of a crescendo, and that f- it almost feels like it, it, it preempts uh, the the work that hasn't quite been done to establish their relationship, and then what transpires after that f- 
shifts between these moments of wonderful subtlety, including a scene in a, a nursing home, which was truly remarkable, followed by a really clunky scene in, in a car, which seemed completely and utterly redundant and didn't seem to make kind of narrative logic. And there was a number of these moments that I found quite jarring in that probably the last third of the film. But overall, you, like you, I didn't resent watching this film at all. There were really eloquent moments in this film. There was a tiny little sequence where two characters are outside. They're in an empty lot and in the background, there's a group of small children walking past carrying balloons. And the couple in the foreground are talking. And about a minute and a half in, you just see the balloons off screen fly up into the sky, like these gorgeous little flourishes, but kind of not enough of them, like uh, really disjointed, like you said. I, I was really um, struck by the, the the poignancy of the timing of this film now that negative gearing is very much in the news. Oh, yeah. um, you know, that kind of realisation, I think, that a lot of people are having, that, that that some people are in this country encouraged to own property for certain reasons and other people are discouraged for other reasons. Um, this film's very much about that, so the topicality obviously would have been accidental, but I was struck um, at how, how timely those issues were. Yeah, it certainly addresses that, that, that idea of, of there is a, there's a whole class of Australians you can't afford to buy now. You know, so unless you're a wealthy baby boomer or the one-year-old of a baby boomer, you're not going to have your own, your own home. Not that baby boomers having one year old at the moment, but you, you understand what I mean. Um, I adored this film. I, I, I really liked it, and I, I completely hear what you're saying. I think the strongest material is in the first third or so, but for me, that set up the tone of the film enough to ride me right through to the end. And every time it may have slowed down, f- for one of you, I felt there was one of these scenes that we have referenced that lifted it back up for me. There was a really off-kilter vibe to this whole film that I really enjoyed, a slightly nervous energy. I think there's an early scene where John Clark and Anthony LaPaggia are talking with a sprinkler in the foreground yeah, and they're having to constantly duck in and out of the sprinkler. And it's it sounds very simple, but it's it creates this very uncomfortable energy that I really latched into. And I just found myself starting to giggle and, and laugh more and more at the film. I did see it with an audience, half of whom, you know, I think three quarters of whom were quite silent and a handful of us were howling with laughter at certain scenes, often courtesy of, of John Clark. Um, just his delivery is absolute genius and yes if there is one problem with the film is there's a big chunk in the middle with no john clark he needed to be there for the whole <laughs> film but i think anthony lapaggio is a beautiful performer i think he's one of the great i honestly think he's one of the all-time great actors who probably hasn't had the recognition he deserves i mean balabo is i still think a masterpiece of australian cinema and a lot of that is to do with his performance and, and i really liked his more contained energy in this so yeah that really uh, offbeat sort of disarming humor really worked for me and and this film reminded me of a lot of uh, American indie 90s cinema, a lot of the very low-budget, sort of small-scale, domestic, understated dramas that came out of America at the time. I didn't think of this at all as a typical Australian film. It had a very different sensibility to what I associate with kind of Australian suburban films. It really had more of that yeah, indie-American, I-don't-quite-know-where-this-is-going spirit. And, it, and, and I think the film does sort of build into more of a kind of it, some people might describe it as overly sentimental or saccharine. It, it, I d- didn't feel like it was. I felt it got quite heartfelt and, and moving. I found it quite convincing, but it does move into more kind of conventional territory. But the relationships are all so strange, and they're all so strange the way they've come together. I hear what you're saying, Josh, about that emotional climax kind of happening early, but that's another kind of detail I liked because their relationship was so unconventional. It's almost working in reverse. They have the rush of emotion quite early in this film, and then it sort of peters out into something sort of more 
more tangible and recognisable. Um, For me, it was more a structural issue. I think that scene needed to be there. And I, I like that it happened earlier, not the traditional you know penultimate scene moment. Yeah. But I felt like that scene kind of needed a bit more work for us to buy what the content of that scene was was getting at. I'm, I'm talking quite ambiguously because I don't want to sort of give no, it away. No, and look, that's a fair comment. And, and this is nothing like his previous feature films, but it's, if you've seen some of his TV work in short films, yep. that very off-kilter, very droll humour is very much a feature of his work. So, yeah, I, I don't know why I latched onto this film so hard, but I really fell in love with it and found it very moving and really, really funny, often for reasons I couldn't quite explain why. I, I was quite moved by the ending of this film and I was mm. quite surprised by it. I... I, I in retrospect, I guess it's quite predictable, but I, I wasn't really braced for it. Um, and I, yeah, I, I feel that it earned the right to its ending. I know that's probably a strange way to no, put I, it. No, I, I like that expression. It, it, some films don't, and yeah, I felt this one it, did. It didn't feel like it was going through the motions. It really felt like it, it put the hard yards in to get to where it wanted to be, and maybe where it wanted to be wasn't the most radical filmmaking decision but mm. but it I, I mean I found the ending quite satisfactory yeah and I love the fact that his relationship with his ex-wife wasn't the typical relationship on screen with ex-wives that you see like they have a really nice chemistry and I think Justine Clark's an actor I've long liked as well and she does really good work are they related by the way or is I don't think so no 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 no, no. And Gary Sweet has a small role in this oh, film that's... as himself which and his scenes are really funny too yeah, yeah funny-ish <laughs> 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 well, that's a month of Sundays. I, I think we could overall say we all liked it to a degree. I'm probably at the, the top of the mountain with my love for that film. But, uh, yeah, a month of Sundays has sort of got a medium to, to limited release happening right now. If you're curious how long to the cinema, you're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Alex, Josh and Cerise. We are going to be looking at the latest Marvel film in just a moment. <laughs> Triple R. Captain America Civil War. This is the third Marvel film centred on Captain America, a genetically enhanced super soldier from World War II who fights evil with the modern-day Avenger team of superheroes. I've tried to keep this short, Josh, but it's hard to summarise this film. In this instalment, the Avengers are being torn apart by what to do about a new decree that they should become directly answerable to the UN. Uh, Captain America believes they should not, which puts him in direct opposition to Iron Man. Two factions form as a result and further complications arise by the Captain's desire to protect his old war buddy, Bucky Barnes, who Manchurian candidate style has been brainwashed and can be programmed into committing all sorts of evils. This film juggles an enormous ensemble of characters, including introducing a few new ones. Uh, it juggles many narrative threads from previous films, plus delivering all the large-scale action set pieces that are expected from these types of films. Josh and I went along to see it recently. What did you make of all this, Josh? Is it successful in the way it juggles all these many different elements? Uh, in a word, yes. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> That's all right, we're going to Captain America Civil War. The funny thing about these type of films is I think they lend themselves to any number of uh, approaches. I mean, we talked uh, last week in response to uh, uh, viewer feed or listener, listener feedback, uh, you know, about the priorities that you often position on in films, in that case, in terms of narrative. And we could talk about this film just as from a spectacle point of view, and I thought it was an incredible spectacle. You could talk about the the foreign policy, politics and ideology. And I think there's some really interesting stuff going on in, in that context. Or maybe another part to launch it off, since you mentioned um, Captain America's 
old war buddy, as you put it. I think you don't have to look too far to queer this text. This is a really, a, I think, a, a love story between two men in which politics intervenes and, and Captain America is forced to choose between his old war buddy and going along with the Avengers. I mean, I don't think it's quite subtle. I think the film is quite knowing about the subtextual levels in, in which this film is lends itself to queer readings. My one criticism of this film is the awkward and, and horribly constructed kiss scene for a random character who then subsequently sort of disappears from the, from, the, from the narrative. And that was a kind of a disappointment, but I think the film doesn't exactly disavow its sort of sexual politics in that context. Yeah, sure, that, 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 that <laughs> definitely works. I know the kiss scene you, you're mentioning, I mean, I saw that coming a mile off as soon as that character entered, we knew where that was going. It wasn't quite as bad as, it, I think it's the end of The Lord of the Rings, where they suddenly that they, they get sort of some very panicky over the fact that the hobbits seem to be very closely... Yeah, they, they, they get worried their friendship could be misread, so they introduce a love interest very, very late in the day for whatever the Hobbit is who isn't the <laughs> Mary famous and one. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Stupid films. Um, no, that's not okay. Um, I, look, I, I tend to be ambivalent about these Marvel films. I think they're all pretty good on the same level, and very few of them are any better than anything really that comes out. But this one I was really, really excited by. I really enjoyed this film. And we mentioned that spectacle level. And just quickly, the action is handled beautifully in this film. There's that real exciting bodies in motion and given their chance to, 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 to dance. I mean, there's a lot of computer-generated imagery in this film, but it never overwhelms. You always get the sense that this is the actor physically moving through space. Even when I'm sure they weren't, it was done on a computer, it looks like they are. Which is probably the first time I, I, I've seen it in one of these films where where those bodies in motion, those CGI bodies in motion, have had that sense of physicality. That, that gumby kind of rubbery look to them, yeah. yeah. And just just the contrast between that opening scene of Age of Ultron, the second Avengers film, mm. where which looked horribly cartoonish, and the contrast with this one, where those fight scenes from the very beginning have that immense sense of physicality. I think we, we describe them as almost like a that balletic quality. I, the film reminded yeah. me of John Woo and that kinetic you know style of, of choreography and the way in which it was filmed as well. The John Woo... Actually, the comparisons to Hong Kong cinema, I think, are quite warranted, especially thematically. This is a film about people who should be friends who are torn apart by politics and forced to fight against each other, which is really big in Hong Kong cinema, especially when they're getting close to Hong Kong being handed back to the Chinese. This theme was all throughout their cinema, and John Woo did it beautifully. Uh, what I also found exciting about the action is a lot of it was vertical. So action normally takes place on the X-axis. You know, it's, it's usually left to right. You see people battling their way through or back the other way. So many of these set pieces were about people coming down buildings and it used a 3D beautifully because you've got a sense of space and depth and constantly being able to fall into things. I haven't seen that done this excitingly since uh, The Dark Knight. So the, the second of... That was the second one, wasn't it? The was, Dark yep. Knight, yeah, of the Nolan's Batman films, where the, 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 the symbol of Batman falling, this kind of falling from grace, was really big in the action in, in, in that film. And there's a taste of that in this as well. But also just the unusualness of these superpowers at play. I mean, the, the, the highlight of this film for me, and I suspect for a lot of people, is the second last action sequence where you just... It, it, it's a nerd's wet dream where just all the superheroes get to fight it out. And and they have these weird powers. And the, and the film visually handles these different players and their different powers 
so beautifully. You always get a sense of what's going on and who's doing what, and you're constantly being surprised. Brian Singer's X-Men films were the first ones, I think, to really exploit the weirdness of the superpowers in an exciting way, and I haven't really enjoyed that visually since, uh, until now, with this film. Yeah, it's interesting you mention um, Singer and X-Men, and I was reading a review by Mike Bartlett earlier this week, and he compared this to X-Men 2, both in terms of of that quality, but also in terms of the way in which the film bounces the ensemble cast while still advancing the characters in terms of their, their drama. I think this film really does that as well. It's not just sort of, you know, CGI puppets in motion with spectacle. I think they're actually the Russo brothers. Are they brothers? Yeah, they must Let's be. call them the Russos. I think they're actually trying to, you know, within the, the framework of the, you know, the confined framework of this franchise, I think they're actually trying to do something a little bit different, push it in a different direction. And it still has that sort of espionage flavour that they inflected into Winter Soldier. I mean, the leaps between, you know, Africa and Europe and America. And, you know, there's, there's still that sense that this could be a Bourne film, but there's just a hell of a lot more characters in this one. And, and this film also, similar to, to Batman vs. The Superman grapples with the idea of accountability. So, you know, there's a, there's a quote at the start of the film, which is, is victory worth, uh, victory at the expense of innocence. That's what's been happening in this franchise. These superheroes have been battling it out and destroying cities and buildings. And, and we see in this film, they have killed people. This is the first time I've seen them actually being held accountable for deaths. And, and this is what tears them apart. And I was really curious to see politically how that will play out. The kind of half that goes over to the side of a simulation saying, yes, we will be dictated to by the UN. That is, we need that kind of responsibility and accountability. And then the, the other group that says that we know better. We are going to fight for the righteous ones. And if we fall underneath the banner of the UN, we'll be corrupted or we won't be used properly. And Captain America is very much on the side of individualism so i was really curious to see which side would be proven right i suppose but i think what the film is trying to do is saying they're all good guys and these are two valid points of view to have and there's actually no easy solution to either of these things it's almost acknowledging just the inherent messiness of ideology and foreign policy either that or it's politically completely confused and doesn't really know what it's doing one of those two things. Yeah, I'm going to give the film the benefit of the, I think of the I doubt am too. on this because I think, in some ways, the film is, and, and you know, because they're superheroes and typically superheroes like these represent the kind of centrist American values. Here you have Iron Man, Tony Stark, being aligned with the government. He wants to toe the line with what supposedly the U.S. you know administration want to do. And yet, on the other side, you have Captain America, who clearly represents American values and individualism, and he's the sort of the renegade. And in terms of what he's advocating, which is we're not beholden to the UN if we need to go into another country in order to conduct violence and for the greater good, that's what we're going to do. And, of course, that is, you know, the American foreign policy over the last sort of 50, 60 years. So both sides represent American core values, but the film is trying to kind of wrestle with, you know, is this just... I think the film is wrestling with the paradox at at the centre of American ideology and values. And I think it does it in interesting ways that seems to divide audiences in terms of who their allegiances lie. And that's funny being listening to some people's response to the film saying, oh, I thought the film was definitely pro-Captain America and other people saying, no, I was totally identifying with the Stark position throughout the film. Yeah. So, so in, and, and that's actually fascinating for a mainstream, such an overtly mainstream film like this, actually not to, not to force sort of our, our allegiance to one side or the other. Instead, it's very much saying these are two... I mean, I wonder if this is the kind of sub, subliminal 
thinking in the filmmaker's mind that America is a country now radically divided and people are not listening to each other because they, they take very definite stances of what they believe in and they automatically dismiss what the other side is saying. Maybe this film is saying that these are both legitimate views, neither neither can be accepted or dismissed outright. This is This is a problem that we have everybody's essentially on the same side but fighting about how to be on the same side again this was a very big theme in a lot of this hong kong action cinema of the late 80s early 90s the other i think the other just on that the other kind of key political point which this film raises which has sort of been more in the background of the the earlier releases is this idea that the uh, avengers exist because of the threats to global peace and, and security and yet this film suggests that their presence is in fact the reason for the violence and violence has escalated after their emergence and you know, i thought that was interesting the way in which the through the character particularly the character of vision who sort of sort of was the, the godlike observer of, of much of this i thought the way in which the film introduced this idea and uh, gets again it comes back to these ideas of culpability i thought that was really good and i thought we hadn't quite seen that in and it's another example where we've i think this film is doing something a little bit different yeah no absolutely agree um and i mean some of these themes we've seen in in the batman films in in all their incarnations actually this idea that once batman is coming to existence his dark shadow is also coming to existence and it possibly Possibly has done more harm than the good that he could ever do. Um, it's interesting to see that, the, the, you know, that, that whole DC comic books have gotten very sort of messy and convoluted and have radically fallen out of favour. I'm old enough to remember when we craved dark superhero films. Now dark superhero films are very unfashionable. Uh, it doesn't help that they're not that great either, the, the current batch. Although I think you and I both didn't mind the last Jack Snyder effort, but it, it, it actually looks even worse now compared to this one. Yeah, I think somehow because I was willing to stand up and say it's not the worst film of all time, I strangely became labelled a defender of the film, which I'm not quite sure I am, but having seen Civil War, there really is no comparison. I think this is streaks ahead of Batman versus Superman. Completely agreed. You're listening to Plato's Cave. Uh, we've done our superhero film for the year. Oh, there might be one more coming out, but uh, thank you for indulging us. Three. Triple. You're listening to Plato's K. We're not too far off being done with tonight's show, but first, let's look at The Silences, a very personal documentary and essay film by Australian-New Zealand filmmaker Margot Nash. Through archival photos, letters, narration, old interviews with family members and clips from her previous films, Nash explores her childhood in New Zealand and then Australia with her mentally ill father and her mother with whom she grew to have many complex and conflicting feelings towards... Personal and specific, The Silences raises many broader issues that affected entire generations of men and women from the period the film covers. I suspect this film will resonate on some level with nearly everybody who, who, who sees it. Would you all agree with that sentiment? It resonated a ton with me. Um, hmm. Maybe it's partly because I've had a, a journey of my own from uh, one side of the ditch to the other, back and forth, and like most people, some... Uh, complex family situations um which i will not go into detail about but it's it's there's something very uh engaging for, for mine about margot nash's uh, sort of a, a procedural she's it's an investigation into various mysteries that have plagued her for all her life and by the time she's made this film i think she might be in what about her 60s or so um i'm not sure of her exact age um 
But uh, through incorporating clips from previous clearly quite autobiographical films of hers, and I, I'm not familiar with her earlier film work, though I am appreciative of the fact that Cinematheque locally have programmed a, a vacant possession. Of yeah, at, at, yeah, and at least another scene. short as well mm-hmm. um, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but there, there was there was a lot in this that, uh, in a way, while it's very very personal film, it's very much a memoir film. Uh, there's uh, there's some very conventional and very effective storytelling devices adopted. Not least the withholding of knowledge and and certain uh, telegraphing, uh, especially concerning a discovery which is revealed to us about mm, close to halfway through the film, where she, she learns that she had a, another sibling. And this is just brought up and then left a while for us to ponder too the significance of a discovery of a photo she found in an album that she knew she wasn't allowed to look through and, of course, couldn't resist like any child. Uh, and, and then had been left to stew over the significance of that photo for many years and then by degrees the film comes back to that after uh, circling around in a very roundabout fashion for a long time while various other uh, you know, related family mysteries are... Uh, poked away at and uh, slowly start to show some of the, uh, some of these difficult truths emerge surrounding all manner of uh, health conditions, especially mental health, and some which um, inspire a great deal of uh, worst-case scenario uh, imaginings. So certainly in my mind, when we hear tell of someone incarcerated in a, a mental health facility in the middle of nowhere in the South Island of New Zealand in a time when uh, mental health was nowhere near as under, well understood as it is today, and hell, there's still a hell of a long way to go there too. Um, but uh, but that, that's beautifully undercut later on when we actually see something of this facility and one of the people who was uh, charged with responsibility of looking after people there. It, it's a really complex uh, emotional terrain that this film traverses, and I, I, I found it entirely gripping and, and entirely relatable, both uh, in that uh, the landscapes are all very familiar, whether we're talking about uh, quite remote parts of the South Island of New Zealand, or at least very familiar for me, having grown up in Wellington at the bottom of the North Island, but very familiar with the country overall, but also eastern suburbia of Melbourne. And quite a bit of this film's key events are situated in Ringwood. Uh, so I, I'd be very curious to, but whether this resonated with any of the rest of you like it did me because there was quite a bit for me to personally grasp onto uh, but I still suspect there must be some very universal themes in amongst all of this. I'm really fascinated by this because I um, what you've said almost mirrors my own connection to, to this film and I was really struck by it. This film is formally, I, you wouldn't call it flamboyant, it's a very simple, very simply made film um, and it's, it's very understated. So many of... Um, the experiences that she talks about really struck a chord with me. They really overlapped with some some of my own family history. Not all of them, but quite striking things that I wasn't prepared to uh, think about. I wasn't prepared to have that kind of connection and I wasn't prepared to have those things brought up on a bigger scale. Um, what really struck me, though, is how this micro and macro experience or, or sort of sensory experience for me really intersected to create a really powerful response there's a margot says throughout this film she just she describes herself as a child quite beautifully um it's a strange experience i think it's a strange thing to do to talk about what you were like as a child in a kind of objective way but the way that she talked about the things that she would get up to was 
for me it was like being struck by lightning because I was exactly that child. I was I was a climber and I was into things. I was I was I was a, a hunter. I um there's beautiful scenes in this film of her digging through or or of a child digging through jewelry boxes, her mother's jewelry box. Yeah, gorgeous. I have such strong memories of doing that with my mother's jewelry box that I'd forgotten until I saw this film. And it took me while I was watching this film, I was sort of travelling between watching Margot's story but remembering my own um and in the way that it played into my own family history and our own stories and our own secrets and i remember so this sort of sense memory of picking up this jewelry of my mother's and knowing in retrospect being so struck by it these these little objects these little treasures that just so distinctly embodied um my mother's life before me these, I totally these, got that ob- too. these objects that i knew nothing about they had stories and i didn't know what those stories were but she was my mother and i should know everything about her i love the way that um very again very overtly there's nothing kind of there was nothing sort of subtle or, or overtly clever about the way that people like margaret atwood were quoted in this film like quoted quite explicitly and again that opened up my own connections my own kind of literary connection so i was thinking about people like kathy acker um and her stories about her mother great expectations my mother demonology her kind of relationship with her own mother and these kinds so these just the relationships that we mirror through art that i was actually going through while i was watching this film on a completely different level i also really admired the unapologetic nature of this being a memoir i really liked the historiographic the feminist historiographic aspect of this film where there was no point that she said here is why my story is worth telling she's just in she's like here is my story there's no there was no framing of that so i I have the right to tell my story but as it turns out it's quite a gripping slice of new zealand gothic it really is Everything you said sort of taps into what I was alluding to with my introduction, which is the fact that she has been so overtly making this a personal story means that it quite naturally is a very true experience, which I think resonates with all of us who who watch it. And I certainly had similar things uh, as well, sort of a weird sensory memory this film uh, evokes. I was very surprised at how incredibly moved I was feeling by the end of this film. It was quite profound. I mean, there's some very sad revelations that come out. But also the discussion about how mental illness was was just not understood in that era especially generationally and how she started to look back at generations of people in her family and recognize these tendencies and that's something that i've been through with my own family where we, you know a few of us to different degrees have been played with demons and you know i look at some of my grandparents and think they that's what they were suffering from and it wasn't understood and it was brushed aside it was dismissed as having a heart attack i think and in, in, nerves yeah is nerves. the word i think that marco uses and, a lot and in the way that just creates very difficult relationships between generations especially generations of women and i've, I've recognized that in my family as well and how some of the later generations have managed to break that tension and, and start a more healing positive experience and i found that very moving as as well i i could not have watched this film with my mother or my sisters i think that would have been too unbearable i would have felt like i was intruding on something if that happened but extremely impressive and the simplicity of this film is what gives it it's 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 enormous power yeah i hadn't seen any of um nash's previous films either and and i think that's something that needs to be remedied the uh, photographs that are scrutinised in this too, there's real power in just uh, how the camera just sl- very slowly zooms out on them to reveal the full photo and then to really consider the expressions that we then scrutinise as well on some of her relatives' faces. And and you do see as she 
Well, I found myself very much seeing what she saw in them, and I didn't have that link, of course, with uh, any sort of familial link with the people depicted. But I found incredibly powerful how um, what she was able to read into the some of these photos. I immediately somehow adopted that same reading and felt for her tremendously. And, uh, yeah, as, as moving a film as I've seen all year. I was really struck by the use of documentation in this film. Again, I, I guess linking back to that idea of historiography, In every every family has letters. You know, like all I could think is, where, where are my letters? Where are mm. my family's letters? I know that there's photos, there's a box of photos somewhere, but there must have been letters, you know, and I remember, you know, these half-remembered stories from when you're a child about letters. My my grandmother, when she passed away, left a letter to my dad to burn all of her love letters from my grandfather. You know, these are the kind of things that I was remembering watching this film, and it's, it's so distinctly Margot's own story, but it was impossible to watch this and not think of my own. We've been talking about the silences, which is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of As If Productions. The month of Sundays is on limited release through Madman Entertainment. Captain America Civil War is on wide release through Walt Disney Studios. You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.